Welcome to the Hills Baptist Podcast. We're so glad you're joining us as we see Jesus glorified, lives transformed and hope revealed in the Adelaide Hills and beyond. We hope you enjoy this message. Uh, When you go to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army greater than yours, do not be afraid of them because the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt will be with you. When you are about to go into battle, the priest shall come forward and address the army. He shall say, Hear, O Israel, today you are going into battle against your enemies. Do not be faint-hearted or afraid. Do not be terrified or give way to panic before them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you victory. The officers shall say to the army, Has anyone built a new house and not dedicated it? Let him go home, or he may die in battle and someone else may dedicate it. Has anyone planted a vineyard and not begun to enjoy it? Let him go home, or he may die in battle and someone else will enjoy it. Has anyone become pledged to a woman and not married her? Let him go home, or he may die in battle and someone else marry her. Then the officers shall add, Is any man afraid or faint-hearted? Let him go home so that his brothers will not become disheartened too. When the officers have finished speaking to the army, they shall appoint commanders over it. When you march up to attack a city, make its people an offer of peace. If they accept and open their gates, all the people in it shall be subject to forced labour and shall work for you. If they refuse to make peace and they engage you in battle, lay siege to that city. When the Lord your God delivers it into your hand, put to the sword all the men in it. As for the women, the children, the livestock, and everything else in the city, you may take these as plunder for yourselves. And you may use the plunder the Lord your God gives you from your enemies. This is how you are to treat all the cities that are a distance from you and do not belong to the nations nearby. However, in the cities of the nations, the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the disdainable things they do not do in worshipping their gods, and you will sin against the Lord your God. When you lay siege to a city for a long time, fighting against it to capture it, do not destroy its trees by putting an axe to them, because you can eat their fruit. Do not cut them down. Are the trees of the field people that you should besiege them? However, you may cut down trees that you know are not fruit trees and use them to build siege works until the city at war with you falls. This is the word of God. Well done, Josh. That was quite a... uh feet of strength. 
powerful reading of the Word. Um, we're continuing in our series, uh, These Are the Words, sermon series, looking through the book of Deuteronomy. And uh, we've, we've hit a, a tricky passage. I don't know how you felt uh, as some of those, um, during some of those readings. What's described there kind of makes me feel uncomfortable in my 21st century Western uh, ideals of what's right and wrong. Even like grappling with the New Testament and God being a God of love, of justice, of peace, to make commands like destroy them completely. It doesn't sound like the God that we know or we might think of when reading the Bible, particularly the New Testament. Now, as we're working through uh, the book of Deuteronomy, we're kind of tackling it uh, along the Ten Commandments. And we, we are, uh, just with scheduling of things and I'm inviting other preachers in to help and stuff like that, we're, we're, we're not going sequentially. So we're kind of skipping ahead to command number six, which is uh, you shall not murder, which really speaks to a person's right to live. And again... We think, well, hang on, isn't God sanctioning killing here? How does, how does that work? How does that fit? And uh, what we'll do, we'll tackle the passage, not the command. Like I want to preach from Deuteronomy 20. Uh, but what we will see is that behind the scenes here, and if we pick ourselves out of our current Western 21st century context and kind of examine the passage in the time and place and setting that it was written, actually... Uh, this passage has profound impact and, and, and kind of speaks into human rights. And we'll, we'll unpack that. What we're going to do is we're going to look at how this passage applied then and what's, what's behind the surface, what's below here. And then we'll kind of think about, well, how does it apply today? Because it does apply in a very different way. Does it apply today? Well, let's explore that together. And kind of what... Like the, the, where we're going is, um, oh, I've got my points already. The first one is um, God is the God who fights on our behalf. Then he fights fairly and he fights for the holiness of his people. So the first point, God fights for us. In verse tw- uh, chapter 20, verse 1, it, it Moses, who's, who's speaking and preaching to the Israelites, he talks of the enemies. And he says, when you see, when you go to war against your enemies, and what do you see? You see horses and chariots, an army greater than yours. I don't know if you remember the context of Deuteronomy and like the story of the nation of Israel. They, they were delivered from Egypt, certainly a force much greater than theirs. They, they were wandering the desert for many years. And the reason they were wandering the desert was because they got to the promised land. They sent some spies in, and the spies came back, and they said, this, this, these enemies are too big. They're giants. We can't fight them. They're, they're far too great a foe. Like, we will die. We will be decimated if we were to go and fight against them. And it was only two uh, of those spies, Joseph and Caleb, who said, this is the land that God's promised us. And so God uh, sent the Israelites away and they wandered the desert for 40 years because they forgot a very, very, very important lesson, a very important truth. 
as the people of God. And that is God is the one who fights for them. They're his people and he's deeply concerned for them. And he is the one who fights for his people. So these intimidating, these, they go against these intimidating enemies. Moses says, do not be afraid of them because the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt will be with you. And he gives instructions of how the, the priests and how the nations kind of approach, will approach a, a battle. He says, when you're about to go into battle, the priest who's like the representative of God will come and he will address the army. So it's not the commander, it's not the governor, it's not the, it's a priest, a holy person, a, a person set aside for the relationship of God and Israel. They are to come and he shall say, hear, O Israel, today you are going to, into battle against your enemies. And then he says four times in four different ways, do not be afraid. Uh, he says, do not be faint hearted. Do not be afraid. Do not be, do not panic. Do not be terrified. Why? For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you victory. And this, this very theme, the fact that God goes ahead, God is the one that fights the battles of Israel, is a theme that just goes right across the Bible, right across the, the history of Israel. You see it again and again and again in the stories of Israel and how they enter battles and, and God brings victory. Or if they try and go without God, things go badly. And a really a great example, a story I'm sure many of us know, is the story of David and Goliath. Do you remember how that story begins? The Israelites are fighting the Philistines, which is you know, in the promised land. And uh, the, the way they're, they're tackling it is that there's, they're, uh, they're both decided, well, we'll send out a champion each. And then Philistines send Goliath, this big, massive giant, strong. He's got a massive armor, big shield, a spear, a big sword. And the Israelites are terrified. And they won't send anyone. And in this valley... Goliath keeps coming out every day. All right, who's your champion? Who's going to come fight me? And he mocks Israel day after day. And then King David comes along. Sorry, he's not a king. Boy David comes along, uh, who's just a child at that point. Just a child. And he comes, and uh, he, he, he comes to deliver some food for his brothers. And he says, like, what's going on? Why isn't anyone going up against Goliath? Don't they know what we have... God fighting on our behalf. And, and David says, I'll go. He's just, a, he's just a kid. He says, I'll go. And then David goes, and it's much more to the story. And if I were writing the Bible, or if I were like writing a screenplay or a movie, you know, this is how I would want a, the scene to go, right? There's this tiny boy coming with a sling, uh, approaching Goliath. And Goliath, this massive giant, says, what is this? that you bring a, a sling to a sword fight. And then David starts swinging his, his, his um, slingshot. And he says, no, I've brought a god to a sword fight. And then whoosh, shoots the slingshot, hits Goliath in the head. He falls down and dies. But that's the point. 
That's one story, one example of Israel going to battle and God is the one who fights their battle. David remembered what Moses said here in Deuteronomy 20. God is the one who goes and fights on their behalf. God is the one that defeated Goliath and delivered Israel from the Philistines in that time. Just quickly, in the next little bit, Moses gives um, some exemptions to, to the battle, like how this actually works out. If God is the one that fights Israel's battle, they need not panic. They need not not to throw everything into it. So there's a few exemptions to the ward. If people are building a house, if they've planted a vineyard, if they're engaged to be married, they don't have to go. This will thin out the army quite a lot. And uh, what it kind of what it shows and, and says, it speaks to the domestic priority of Israelite men. Because if they were to die, the house would be inhabited by someone else. The wife uh, will marry someone else. The vineyard will be enjoyed by someone else. And there's a, there's a sense of keep your priorities in check. Keep your priorities in check. Uh, do what you need to do at home before coming out and fighting this battle. And the last one is really interesting. If anyone's afraid or faint-hearted, let him go home. Let him go home so he doesn't bring uh, the other soldiers with him in his, in his fear. And it's not, a, it's not necessarily a free pass to, if you're not ready to go to war, you just say, I'm afraid to get out of it. But it's just reiterating this sense of, we don't need to be afraid because God fights on our behalf. So that's the first principle that we get. God fights for Israel. The second one, God fights fairly. God fights fairly. And here's where we get into some of the more trickier, complex parts of the passage. It's important to notice straight up is that um, Moses kind of splits between two types of war, two types of of, um, campaigns, if we call them then. One is, is to nations and fighting nations that are further away. Verse 15 explains it. These are, these apply, this is how you are to treat all the cities that are at a distance from you and do not belong to the nation nearby. So there's one category of Israel expands its territories, fights other nations externally. There's, there's a certain way they are to go about warfare. There's a different policy for how they are to um, go to war with nations in Israel. Like they're about to go across the Jordan into the nation of Israel and occupy that land. There's a different approach, and we'll come to that, uh, come to that next. But from verse 10 through to 14, it explains how they are to go about uh, war and conquering other cities. And again, we, 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 need, to, we need to take ourselves out of um, the 21st century idea of war. Like This was such a normal thing two, two and a half thousand years ago, three thousand years ago, of of countries and nations fighting and conquering each other. And I, um, I found a, a, a quote from an Assyrian king, a historian Dan, Dan Carlin uh, writes in this space. And I actually found a quote, and I was going to quote it, but actually I decided it's too gruesome. So I'm not, if you want to hear it, come to me afterwards, but uh, if you're over 18. But um, I won't share the quotes, but just to, to give you an idea of what the other nations did when they besieged a city, when they conquered a city, when they went into warfare, is they would, um, and this, this still is a bit 
gruesome, so apologize for that. But uh, they, would, they would impale the leaders on pillars outside the towns. And anyone left alive, uh, they would cut off limbs, ears, eyes. They would kill all the livestock. They do terrible things to the women and children. They set buildings on fire. They tear up the crops. They plant thistles and seeds, uh, thistles and, and weeds, sorry, in the fields. They, they would get massive vats of salt and put salt in through the soil so nothing can grow. And sometimes they would even like divert an entire river to, to flood and to like completely destroy everything in a town. Dan describes uh, that the damage inflicted was comparable to a nuclear bomb. Absolutely decimating. But the difference is that people would do it by hand. That's, that was not what was normal in the ancient Near East versions of warfare. That was the norm. That was the context that Deuteronomy is speaking into. And now compare how God sends Israel into war. He says, when you march up to attack a city, first make an offer of peace. Make offer of peace. There's an opportunity for this town not to, to die, not to, to lose uh, their people. There's, there's this humanitarian um, sense of these people have a right to live. So we've got to give that opportunity. And, and if, they were to, if they were to accept peace, um, it says the people shall be subject to forced labor or shall work for you. This was, again, very normal. Um, they would become a, what's called a vassal state. So they'd enter into agreement and this, these other cities, these other nations would come under the kingdom of Israel. But then they say, if, if that's not the case, lay siege, uh, forcing the city to surrender. Now, other, other countries, they would lay siege, but then do all these things to compromise the town, the cities, like poisoning the water or sending assassins in or doing all kinds of different things to, to um, kill and to compromise the towns. But there's no commands like that here. Now, if uh, once the city surrenders, uh, there's an instruction to kill all the men. Again, this is difficult for us to, to hear and grapple, but what that does, it removes the possibility of any further um, uh, rebellion or war or bloodshed. And then uh, it gives instructions to, to, as for the women, the children, and livestock, verse 14, and everything else in the city, you may take these uh, as plunder for yourself, and you may use the plunder. Other translations say consume or eat, uh, but um, the idea is use the plunder the Lord your God has given you from your enemies. So the, the plunder or the, the things... Uh, it's to, to be used to serve the kingdom of God. It's a gift from God as they've conquered this city, as God's fought, fought on their behalf, to use for God's kingdom. And just, again, like to, just to skip ahead slot, uh, a little bit and look at the rights of women. So, again, for us, like a town's conquered, and it says here that the men, the Israelite men can go in and, and take women for their wives. Like, like wow, this... This doesn't. This clashes with our Western ideals and our understanding of what's right and wrong, and like this is uncomfortable. Um, but again, imagine what the other nations would do, and the other nations might handle that, or even even places now throughout the world where people just take whatever they want and do whatever they want. If you skip ahead, and I, I, sorry, I forgot to put it in the 
in the Bible readings, but just hear what God says, the instructions for when they capture, uh, take, take a woman captive. Uh, from 21 verse 10, if your Bible wasn't open, just turn the page and have a look at this. Verse 10, when you go to war against your enemies and the Lord your God delivers them into your hands and you take captives, if you notice among the captives a beautiful woman and you're attracted to her, you may take her as your wife. So, oh, okay. But first, bring her into your home and have her sh- shave her head, trim her nails, and put aside the clothes she was wearing as she was captured. And that, that, what, what that's doing is uh, bring her to your home and give her an opportunity to mourn. After she's lived in your house and mourned her father and mother for a full month, then you may go to her and be your husband, and she shall be your wife. So actually giving time for, for this woman to, to mourn her loss. Like, it's recognizing this is not just an object to take. This is a human being. Give her an opportunity to mourn. And verse 14, if you're not pleased with her, let her go wherever she wishes. You must not sell her or treat her as a slave since you have dishonored her. This is profound rights for the women uh, in, in these, these conquests, in these, camp, these uh, wars. There's profound rights protected uh, for women. At the end of our passage, um, there's also prof- the rights for the land. Um, uh, verse 19 and 20 is this fascinating couple of verses that it says, take care of the trees. And again, most time in a, in, in a siege, one, one thing that other armies would do was just to cut down all the forests, all the trees, and then that provides wood for materials for, for warfare, but it also removes any food sources for the city. But God says, no, we don't do that. If there are any trees that produce fruit, that's a source of food for, um, for the city. We do not cut it down. Um, uh, verse 19 says, Are the trees, well, the NIV translates, Are the trees people that should, you should besiege them? Uh, ESV in New King James probably translates a little bit better. Are the trees not for the people that you should besiege them? The trees symbolize life. They're food for the people that are being sieged. There's a right to life that's encoded in this passage. There's ex- like when we when we like kind of pull back the curtain of our own Western like 21st century um, culture and context, we see some inc- extraordinarily um, humanitarian and in ecological protections for other nations, for people. Now, the Geneva Convention was written, the first one was written in 1864 that, uh, that kind of sanctioned uh, rights in warfare to protect those, uh, to protect citizens, to protect, protect civilians, um, and to make sure that, that, that nations and countries would fight and there, it would be fair, it would protect the rights of the innocent, protect the rights of, uh, of the people, the right to live. But thousands of years before that, God wrote a convention for how Israel were to go to war that profoundly protected the rights to live of the nations they invaded. And it looks very different to what we understand now, uh, but it's there. God fought fair. God fought fair. I think, I hope that we, 
can, can see that as we think about it in its culture and context. But that wasn't what was applied to the nations that were nearby. Uh, and that brings us to the third principle. The first was God fights for his people. The second, God fights fear. The third, God fights for the holiness of his people. Because as they're about to enter into land, verse 16, however, in the cities of the nations, your Lord, your God is giving you as an inheritance. Do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them or devote them to destruction is other translations. And this is speaking of what is known as harem law or holy war or Yahweh war. Yahweh being the the name of God. And this is a callback to Deuteronomy 7. So we've actually kind of covered this a little bit when we tackled that. Where uh, in Deuteronomy 7, it gives this same instruction. As you enter into land, completely destroy the other nations. Don't leave anything left. Don't create treaties with them. Don't take their wives and uh, their women and make them your wives. Don't take on their idols. Like completely destroy it all. Because God is deeply concerned with the holiness of his people. That his people are completely and entirely set apart for him. Now as we read this passage and and hear these instructions of... um, uh, you know, complete destruction and destroy them. It's worth noting that this this is a tricky thing to grapple in Scripture, that scholars and and pastors and, and people who've spent a lot of time with this are still wrestling with this stuff. There's a sense of mystery of how could God sanction uh, completely destroying a nation and people? Uh, and how can, how can we grapple with that when when we when Jesus says things like love your enemies and uh, and you know and there's commands like do not murder how do we reconcile those kind of things and as we grapple with that there's there's a few things to to consider the first is that yeah God is con- commanding Israel to clear out these other nations from the the land that he has promised Israel because he's deeply concerned with the holiness of Israel. They were to worship him alone. And the other nations, the intermarrying, the treaties, and even taking loot or plunder from these nations would draw Israel away from worshiping him. God knows how fickle and um, how easily tempted we are as human beings. So Israel would completely wipe out the other nations so that they would worship him alone. Uh, the other thing to note is that harem war and this holy war, it's instructed, it's commanded in Deuteronomy. In jo- Joshua, it's described, it, like there's cases of, it describes when Israel went into the land and completely destroyed the nations. Uh, but interestingly, once you get into Judges, it's, it's clear that Israel didn't do that. There's still all these other nations that are still around. So uh, Israel didn't completely do this. Uh, whether that was they didn't, didn't obey God, which is very possible, or the, what, the, what was commanded here is uh, more of a literary technique of like exaggerating just to really push down the point of God is a holy God and Israel to be a holy nation. What we see in Scripture is that God didn't entirely wipe out these other nations. 
And that's another thing to, to notice is that there are exemptions to this holy war in Scripture. So like Rahab, as in the Battle of Jericho, Canaanite woman, who's meant to be destroyed and, and killed off according to this passage, she had, had faith and she was protected by the Israelites. And it's written in that story as a very positive and, and good thing. And even more so, Rahab was a prostitute. It wasn't just like one of the, the, the cities, like holy people and good people. It, she was a prostitute, yet she was saved. She was spared from the destruction of God. The other thing to, to, to grapple with was uh, the policy of Haram, like this holy war, was a way for God to deal with sin, to bring judgment to sin. These other nations did some really evil stuff, like child sacrifice and like horrible, horrible things. Things detestable to us and detestable to God. And God used Israel as a tool of his judgment on these nations. Just like God used other nations as a tool of judgment on Israel at different points in the Bible. The other thing is, is again, this, a, a difference in culture and understanding is that this scripture and this, this policy of, of harem law, harem war, it assumes a corporate identity. So in, in the West, our context, we generally have an individual identity that are, we, we exist as individuals. And that's the highest form of identity is I'm Nick Van Ruth, this person right here. But in the ancient Near East and in the context of the Bible and really in the majority of the world is the, the highest form of identity is a corporate identity. I am my family. I represent the Van Ruths or I represent my nation, Australia. And so for, you know, when one person hurts they all, the, the whole community hurts. And so, um, so the contemporary, the ancient Near Eastern culture would, wouldn't really have a problem if, if the children and, and women and the wives shared the same fate as their parents, the men. That wasn't as confronting to them as it is confronting to us because their understanding of identity was different to us. Now, these things to consider, they, don't, they still don't entirely satisfy the question, how could God allow this? But a few extra things to think about. But verse 18 in our passage gives the clear reason of why Israel were to do this, to completely devote these other nations to destruction. It says, otherwise, if you don't do this, these other nations will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods, and they will, and you will sin against the Lord your God. God is deeply concerned with the holiness of His people, and this nation, this land that Israel are about to enter, this was the place that God was to dwell. God would exist, would be present in the nation of Israel through the temple in Jerusalem. And there's no room for other gods. There's no room for, for sin and detestable things and other idols in the nation of Israel. There's one God and Israel to worship the one God alone. And so they're commanded to, to wipe out all the other nations and all their gods. 
They are to fight sin and fight idolatry. And in their context, that was in the very physical way of, of warfare and other nations. And they were called to do that in that time and place in that way. But how does that apply to us today? Because it does, like there's, there's, a, there's a, a principle here that God fights for the holiness of His people. That's still true today. But how, how, where is that battle fought? It's not between nations. It's not between nations. But it's between spiritual forces. And the battle, it doesn't take place in the, in the nation of Israel, the, the land in that Middle Eastern area. The battle takes place in our hearts. God is deeply concerned with the holiness of His people. But our holiness comes from within. Uh, Ephesians 6 verse 12 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. There is still a battle for the holiness of God's people. But it's a spiritual battle. It's a personal battle. There are forces that will pull us away from God and there are forces that will pull us to God. Now this battle, we might, we might refer to this battle as the process of sanctification. And sanctification means making something holy to be made holy. It's the gradual chipping away of our sin and all the parts of our lives that, that create distance from God, that um, are, are detestable to God, that are, uh, make us separate from God and taking those things, chipping away at those things so that we become more and more like Jesus. Now, the, the reality of the gospel is even though we are all sinful and even, all, even though we are all like those other nations, we've turned away from God, we've done terrible things, we thought terrible things, God loves us and He sent Jesus so that we could become the people of God. Not through, not through um, uh, political identity, but through the work of Jesus, through His forgiveness and being adopted into God's family. So we become the people of God. We become clean and forgiven and saved. But then we begin a journey of, of that ongoing sanctification. We're brought near to God through the death and resurrection of Jesus. But then there's a sense of this ongoing progressive closeness that comes in the spiritual, in like being a Christian. I'm, and those who've been around for a long time know what this is like. This life of growing closer and closer to Jesus and becoming more and more like Him. But this holiness no longer is to do with other nations and things external, it's, it's to do with the inside. Jesus in Matthew, uh, Matthew 15, uh, He's talking, um, talking to disciples. He says, verse 17, Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth and goes into the study and then goes into the stomach and goes out of the body, but the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart and these things defile them. What Jesus is saying is that what makes us unclean or what makes us unholy isn't what goes in, isn't from external things, but it's actually from internal. 
inside. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are the things that defile a person. But the external thing of eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. The battle for the holiness of God's people is a transformation that comes from the inside out, not outside in. And often, I don't know about you, but I feel like when I want to be more like Jesus, when I, when I want to like grow and be more holy, I think I just need to do more. I need to be more. I need to uh, just do better and, and live a better life. And that creates this facade of, of self-righteousness and legalism. If I just do all this external stuff better, if I do that, then, then I'm holy, then I'm righteous, then I'm better in a better position with God. But the battle is within. It's an internal change. This process of becoming more like Jesus isn't something that happens outside and that goes deeper and deeper. It's something that happens inside and it works out to the way we live. And this is a battle that we're equipped for. In Ephesians 6, we won't read it, but it talks about the armor of God, the armor of God. And what's really important to remember that it's God's armor. It's the work that he has done. And it's embracing those realities that help us, equip us for this battle. It's God's salvation for us. It's God's righteousness, God's peace, God's faith, God's gospel. And also importantly, the sword of the Spirit. It is God's word. And this is a sword to use on the battlefield of our own hearts. As we read the word, as we read scripture, it's meant to convict us, to kind of uncover the parts of our life where we've let the enemy in, that we're compromising and allowing ourselves to sin more and more. We've accepted things as okay when deep down we know they're not. Parts of our lives that we don't even realize that we're behaving in this way. The word is meant to convict us. And what the Holy Spirit does, it takes that. It takes the word It shows it to us and it does this transformation from the inside out. Two Corinthians three says, now the Lord is spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory. This is really important. We are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory. It's another way of saying we are being made holy. We're becoming more like Jesus, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, Israel was holy, was set apart because it had the presence of God. And it needed to be set apart and needed to be holy because it housed the the presence of God in the temple. But it also was able to be holy because it had the presence of God. There was an avenue for Israel to go and to make sacrifices, to take their sin and brokenness and all the corruption and everything they kept on messing up again and again. They were to bring that to God for forgiveness, for healing. And that was in the temple. But 
in the New Testament, after Jesus died and rose again, He sent something for us so that the presence of God no longer was in this external place, but was in our hearts. The Holy Spirit, the very presence of God entering into the human heart so that He could transform us from the inside out. And this is the most important lesson from the passage today, is that first one. God is the one who fights our battles. God is the one who fights our battle with sin, with our addictions, with our hurting, with our brokenness, with our corruption, with all the things that we said that we didn't mean to say, for the things we didn't say that we know we should have, the thoughts we've had, the things we've looked at, the conflicts we have. God is the one who fights our battles. But like Israel, He doesn't fight alone. He calls up to pick up tools He's given us, to pick up the weapon, to fight with Him. I just wonder how, how much have we allowed the enemy to, to gain territory in the church? How much have we allowed compromise and justifying and excusing sin and things that God is not happy about to enter into the church, things that God is not happy about to enter into our own lives? God is deeply concerned with the holiness of His people. He's deeply concerned with your holiness and my holiness and our holiness. He's given us a spirit to chip away at us so that we might become more and more like Him. And that's transformation from the inside out. So what I want to do to, to finish is actually have a time of confession. I'll, I'll pray this on our behalf. Actually bring those things to God. And one of the great things of confession is actually acknowledging that this is a battle, this is a struggle. Like we, we've been forgiven, we've been set free in Jesus' Name and that is something we can, we can hold and we can grasp, we can hang our hats on and, and hang our lives on. But there is an ongoing journey that we need help with every day. We've got stuff that we've said and done that we need forgiveness for. Um, I grew up in the Anglican church. One of the, we said confessions fairly often. Obviously, Anglicans probably sin more than others, but we're uh, <laughs> more aware of it, really. One of the things they did in the Anglican church that I really appreciated was kneeling because it kind of demonstrates this complete dependence on God, complete, like, I've got nothing <laughs> to give. I'm kneeling in complete submission. So I think we, we don't do this very often as Baptists, but as we finish up, um, what I'll ask is that if we're able, this is a visual thing, we don't have to do this, but it's, a, it's helpful for us, isn't it? If we're able to, to kneel as I pray, and then we'll finish uh, worshipping God. So if we kneel together. Heavenly Father, we bring ourselves before you. 
we know that you are deeply concerned with the holiness of your people, that we would be set apart for you. We would live for you. We would reflect your love and your life and your glory to this world. But Lord, we have failed to do that. Instead of chasing after you, we've chased after our own desires. Instead of making you first, we've made other things first in our lives. Instead of trusting in you, we've put our trust in other things. And Lord, we bring that before you in confession. We are sorry and we bring it to you. Lord, we thank you for your forgiveness that you, all that stuff, there's nothing that we could do to separate us from your love and that you forgive us and you've set us free from that and that you've invited us into your family. You've made us sons and daughters of God. And Lord, we thank you that you've given us the Holy Spirit that works in our hearts to convict us, to show us of those parts of our lives that that we're yet to hand over to you, that we're yet to submit to you. We, we pray that we would listen to the voice of the Spirit and that we'd obey. Lord, for those parts of our lives that we're really struggling with, we thank you that we have a community that can help us. We thank you for the Spirit. We thank you for your Word that kind of highlights those parts of our lives. Lord, we know you want us to be a holy people. We want to be a holy people. We want to live for you. We want to get rid of sin in our lives. So we pray you would fight for us in this battle by your Holy Spirit, through your word, through your church. Do the work in our hearts, Lord. Change us and transform us from the inside out so that we will become more and more like you. And just like the nation of Israel, we would be a light to all nations and to all people to show your character and your love to the world. We pray for healing, Lord. We pray for your hope. We thank you that we don't have to deal with this ourselves that you are a God who fights on our behalf. You love us fiercely and you you fight on our behalf. We thank you and we praise you and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Hills Baptist Podcast. If you'd like to partner with us in developing and equipping passionate disciples who love God, love people and boldly share the gospel, you can do that at hillsbaptist.com forward slash giving. We pray this message has empowered you to live and love more like Jesus. Have an amazing day.